Welcome to the panel discussion, Predictive Intelligence, the marriage of data and analytics in cybersecurity. Sponsored by TIBCO. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Julie Ard. She's Senior Principal Cyber Engineer and Architect at the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. David Bray is Chief Information Officer at the FCC. He's also Eisenhower Fellow to Taiwan and Australia and a Harvard Executive in Residence. And Stephen Dennis is Data Analytics Engine Director at the Homeland Security Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's part of the Science and Technology Directorate. Great to have you all here. And an interesting time to be meeting and talking about cybersecurity. We're waiting for the uh, new administration to have its policies in place, but there's been a long chain, I think, of continuous, pun intended, uh, policies that have been pretty much guiding the federal agency, but technology is changing. We also have the Internet of Things coming into the way people are looking at cybersecurity, and we also have increasing merging of cyber and physical systems. So those are some of the things we're going to talk about, strategies for dealing with those. And so let's start with the idea of cyber physical systems. I think that's something that applies to all of the agencies you're dealing with and really almost every agency. And so maybe give us a kind of an overview of what that looks like from your point of view. Julie, we'll start with you. Sure. In addition to the digital and physical domains merging, you see everything going into the cloud where physical boundaries no longer apply. So the goal of the IARPA Virtue program is to create a more secure virtual computing environment. Okay, so in the cloud. In the cloud. So all the IoT and all the cyber physical data, it's all going in the cloud. Uh, well, the federal government is moving more and more of its functions into the cloud, and we're supporting that with our research. Okay, from your point of view, uh, what does cyber-physical mean? Does it, does it have application in your particular domain? Uh, so where each agency chooses to host various functions, uh, it could be on their network or it could be in the cloud, in which case it will apply to our program. Okay, and, and David, you've been around the world with this stuff now, literally. Yeah, so uh, back in 2015, I had the opportunity to go meet with the Ministers of Defense, Justice, and Communication in both Taiwan and Australia to ask for what were their country's strategies for the Internet of Everything. And of course, in 2015, most countries, including both the United States, Europe, and Australia and Taiwan, this was just the tip of the iceberg. That said, both countries knew that Increasingly, hospitals were going to be connected, uh, power plants were going to be connected. Uh, those are sort of the examples of the cyber physical systems that if something happens in a cyber realm, it could spill over and either A, lose power to a hospital, mess with uh, patients' medical um, treatments, and have real-world physical effects. And so we're now seeing the blurring of the lines between an attack in cyberspace now having an attack in the physical world. That raises interesting questions about how do you even address this, given that, quite frankly, there are protocols on the Internet that were never built to be 100% secure. Uh, border Gateway Protocol, for example, is open, and you can actually claim that you're another country if you wanted to, and you can route traffic through you. And so short of basically a reengineering of TCP IP, I think we need to actually begin to think more about what, what would be called cyber resiliency which is how do you quickly identify something's going on that's odd. It might be a hardware issue. It might be a software issue. Um, it may be a sign of someone trying to actively exploit it, but quickly sort of quarantine it much like you would in the real world if one of us got mm -hmm. sick. Minimize the dwell time of whatever that issue is, resolve it, and move on. And so we've been treating cybersecurity as if it's a zero-one game, whether you, whether you have an attack or not and whether they get in or not. I think it's really much like in a real world where no one would raise their hand and say, I'm never going to get sick again. It really is about how quickly we can detect that you are sick, get you treatment, and get you better. Um, sort of building on what Julie said, this does build into the cloud because now we're no longer trying to try and build our own mo moats around a fort, which was the old proposition of when you did everything on premise. What you're really trying to do is have analytics across your different cloud environment as to what's normal behavior, so that if something odd occurs, you can rapidly sort of key in and have human assets take a look at it. So a lot of things changing all at once. It is, and say. I think this, this train is barreling down where we're celebrating that we're having more and more of these devices in our homes and the offices with the Internet of Everything, yet we seem to read on a daily basis about a new cyber event or cyber attack. These two trains are barreling down towards each other, and they will collide, and if we don't think about it rationally and preemptively, we are going to be surprised. And would you say the federal government as a whole just being a CIO, talking to other CIOs, that uh, we're starting to get this idea? 
So I think it's in pockets is what I would say. Now, that said, I've talked to a lot of Fortune 500 private sector CIOs who say they can't even make the case to their board of directors at the moment to increase their security because in some respects they don't think it affects them. Uh, and I think this was more true maybe two years ago. Now you read the headlines today that in some respects we had overclassified the, the extent of cybersecurity issues. And I recognize why we did that. But at the same time, it was hard for Fortune 500 private sector firms to make their case to their CEOs and their board of directors to invest in cybersecurity. Even now, you know, it's amazing. We don't, you know, no one would fly a plane without checking the weather report. No one would operate on a patient without, like, checking their medical history. But we do not have something that's openly shared about the health of the internet on a daily, let alone hourly basis. Yet somehow we have organizations doing mission critical activities. So what is that equivalent of the health of the internet report that could be a public good that could inform us all about what are the risks and where should we place our assets? Okay, good uh, point to move to Dennis on, and uh, I'm sorry, Stephen. Mm -hmm. And um, you, uh, cybersecurity lives at Homeland Security. Yeah. And uh, the um, Advanced Research Projects Agency has got to be looking at some of these new ideas in cybersecurity, the physical cyber convergence and also the use of IoT coming into this. So what are you looking at? What are you seeing? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's very daunting. I, I agree with what Julie and uh, David were saying earlier. Uh, I don't disagree with anything they've said so far, uh, but I'll be happy to. Um, at, uh, at some point, you really have to step back and look at these, uh, at these revolutions and how they're, how they're taking place across the breadth of Homeland Security mission. And so uh, Homeland Security has a variety of missions that are all going to be impacted, not just by big data as we've seen and uh, my, labora my laboratory is trying to address. Uh, we also have a different, different division that's purely focused on cybersecurity. Um, but when we look at the different missions of DHS, I don't think that there is an answer that's going to be to reverse engineer or better engineer protocols, as you mentioned, David. Um, and I think it's a trillion dollar market, so it's going to be driven by commercial interests. I really think there's very little the government can do to stop its evolution, and so it's going to happen rapidly. When we look at it, we have an infrastructure protection mission. More than 80% of the nation's critical infrastructure is in the hands of the private sector. So this really means that the government has to have public-private partnerships working directly with those industries in order to bring about best practices for security, cybersecurity, uh, you know, both on existing systems and the new systems as they evolve. You see a lot of industrial cyber-physical systems, uh, you know, big companies who are putting platforms together so that you can understand maintenance profiles of large equipment, uh, you understand the production line that might be going on in some industry. Uh, but I think that there's a much faster pace uh, for some of the missions of DHS than those, uh, those industries have afforded. And so if you look at uh, response as a mission of DHS and you look at disaster response and you look at emergency response, um, as we move into this world where there's instrumentation for both the environment and the individual responder, uh, this is bringing about a new opportunity to do analytics. And so how do I understand the health of a first responder? And so firefighters often, uh, I think the number one cause of death is uh, heart attack. Mm -hmm. uh, understanding their uh, physiological profile in the heat of battle uh, and being able to react to it more quickly, not having to take folks off the front line when they're not in some uh, danger. Uh, understanding what's happening in the environment as the uh, as a situation unfolds. You know, maybe there's a toxic industrial chemical spill. Uh, understanding where that chemical is in the environment, where it actually is, as to where do you think it is, uh, is going to be an important part of the response. Well, let me so, ask you this. As when you mentioned, like, people on the scene and monitoring them, mm -hmm. over time, does the accumulation of that type of information become a set of data that can be used analytically as oh, opposed absolutely. to simply just reacting at that moment. You bet. So uh, we, we are working with the U.S. Fire Administration on their National Fire Incident Database. And uh, this captures information from all of the response that goes on already. Every time a fire truck rolls, about 75% of the time it winds up in this database. And so we can already see the impact of uh, health and safety policy for firefighters in that data. So you can see when the standard, or standard of protection goes up, uh, in a particular area, you can actually see a reduction in death and, and harm to the first responders. And so I think as that data becomes more rich 
as you marry it up maybe with CAD data or other data that might be available, uh, it could make it very, very, uh, uh, very easy to get good observations out of, out of that data that lead to the health and safety of firefighters and, and other first responders. And I want to get back to that point that David mentioned that uh, the old idea was or the old paradigm is you had your network and you put a ring around it and that was the uh, the barrier around your, the moat around your fortress. Uh, but the cloud changes all that. These various data sources change all that. So that gets us maybe to the idea more of resiliency and the, uh, the acknowledgement that something's going to happen. It's like you wouldn't build a skyscraper and expect it to never get struck by lightning. So you design what happens to it when it is struck by lightning that's a crude way to maybe build the idea of resiliency. But how is that coming into this whole way of thinking in cyber? Julie? Well, uh, we are re-architecting the user computing environment to be more inherently resistant to threats. Um, and additionally, we are instrumenting it in ways to get new data, the data that we want, instead of just dealing with the data that we have. So what does that mean in practicality? When you say instrumenting it, what are, what are some of the instruments? Uh, well, <laughs> trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the traditional desktop computing environment, you're just you're just stuck with the data that you have. Uh, I don't want to get too too technical. We won't but give the hackers all the clues yeah, to it. But okay, you can but get pretty technical because the listeners there, you're you're all technical. Well, but imagine being able to build a house, you know, in a secure, you know, in a in a way more resistant to uh, threats that that you know are out there, and then you can put the sensors where you want them. But it's definitely a step change from the way you were doing it before. Oh, we, we're back to the drawing board. And, what, and when you say the threats, that also must mean like the people that, well, I'll click on that just to see what's oh, yes. there you know, inside. We very specifically are designing against four uh, threat vectors. Uh, the traditional external attacks, the insider, uh, the infrastructure, the cloud infrastructure, and um, yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes the people inside aren't even malicious. It's simply just oh, because yes. the, the phishing has become such a major part of this. And I guess maybe that's something that could be analyzed, too, is the changing threat vectors. That's an, almost a data set that's changing also. So I agree 100% that now with Bring Your Own Device uh, at the FCC when I arrived, they didn't actually, back in April, sorry, August of, two, when I arrived at the FCC in August of 2013, they didn't actually have a telecommuting uh, program in place. And I thought that was kind of interesting because we were the FCC. And so we moved to cloud precisely because we wanted to provide people with the ability to do telecommuting but do it securely. And so partly with that was virtual desktop. Mm -hmm. And so basically, essentially, your desktop, whether it's in the workplace or whether you're at home, is the same thing. Uh, but it's also then recognizing that with Bring Your Own Device, these are now increasingly devices that are operating in your environment, in your workplace, or at home that could have impacts. And so we've also made the move to go to 100% cloud-based uh, security operations center. And so we are not on-premise. In fact, we are now 100% um, public cloud and commercial service provider. And with that, there's some interesting tools and technologies that we're looking at in terms of, um, you know, you think about it, no plane or helicopter would fly over an enemy battle space and stay still. But yet we seem to do that with our networks, and we allow reconnaissance to occur and everything like that. What you really want to do is keep on changing the appearance of your network. You want to keep on changing the appearance of your desktop as well, so that any exploit is only good for about five seconds or five minutes before things change. Um, you see this already happening in the commercial sector, where they basically are recycling those machines. They build them from scratch on a regular basis. So this whole software-defined network, software-defined desktop is used in service of cyber. Exactly. And, and, and so in some respects, it's thinking about how does biology fend against threats? And so it helps like with our immune system by making it um, constantly changing, constantly responding, constantly adapting. Same analogs are needed for the cyber resiliency realm. And with that as well, with cloud, I think what that really provides is it's the many eyes approach. That now by partnering with the commercial sector, it doesn't mean we won't have an event. I mean, anything on the internet, there's always the risk that something will happen. But now it's the commercial sector's eyes plus our own security people's eyes looking at it as opposed to just ourselves by ourselves. And that gets me to another question for Stephen. I know Einstein 3 is a different part of DHS. That's in the it NPPD, is, yeah. I believe. Thank but goodness. that must generate <laughs> lots of big data. Absolutely. That, and do you have access to it, and do you get well, learning from it? So 
in my role in the Science and Technology Director, we provide consultation to those groups and we explain to them what storage mechanisms, what uh, bolt-on analytics, what uh, structures might be useful. Uh, we're often testing uh, the latest out of uh, industry laboratories um, in our lab to demonstrate what the art of the possible is. Um, I think too that the speed of, of data and data flow and the need to detect threats quickly uh, brings up another topic which is a total can of worms and that's autonomy and uh, you know systems are going to have to do a better job of helping humans uh, in their task and so this topic of instrumentation I think is extremely important because you want to know what humans are actually doing with the information that they're getting and if it's helping them or not and I think if you're instrumenting the system the underlying system can understand maybe or at least give you data that indicates what humans might be doing with information as it comes and whether it's useful or not you might be able to flag uh, certain pieces of information that become part of some autonomous model that then helps the system quickly adapt to an emerging threat and uh, I think that's going to be important to do not just within a single organization but across a sector and getting to multi-party uh, data situations where you might have uh, hybrid cloud uh, arrangements and, and working through the security of that. So an almost an automated if-then situation uh, of logic for produced by the instrumentation. Yes. David? So yes, I, I think what you're really seeing is a paradigm shift from in the past we treated security as if it was transactional and you would read the logs and really, and this is where I'm showing my bias coming from uh, Centers of Disease Control and Public Health, you're really, instead you're looking for trends almost like epidemiology, which says usually the CEO accesses these systems during these hours, and if all of a sudden you see the CEO's account accessing at midnight on a Friday the financial systems, which is a very, very rare event, you probably want to block that because that's probably not the CEO. Or at least call him up and say, are you on? Or stop him and then have the conversation and say, are you on? And then release it later. Because if you wait, that milliseconds waiting time will probably be too late. So safer to cut him off than ask questions yes. and ask call for him forgiveness up and, later. and then cut <laughs> off. In a perfect world, the system might actually know he's in his office, right? And, <laughs> he, right, and yes. he's the one actually the using sensor. his term. Yep. Yeah. We actually want more options than just cutting it off and begging for forgiveness later. Because one thing you do is alienate your users. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So... All right, well, that's a good place to take a break. Uh, my guests today are Julie Ard, Senior Principal Cyber Engineer and Architect at the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. David Bray is CIO of the uh, FCC, Federal Communications Commission, also an Eisenhower Fellow to Taiwan and Australia, and Harvard Executive in Residence. We'll have to hear what Harvard is doing later on, too. Stephen Dennis is Data Analytics Engine Director at the Homeland Security Department's DHS Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's part of the Science and Technology Directorate. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Our discussion is Predictive Intelligence, the Marriage of Data and Analytics in Cybersecurity, sponsored by TIBCO, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Know the why behind the what. Using TIPCO Analytics, your agency can uncover new dimensions and gain predictive insights in order to eliminate cyber threats. With TIPCO Analytics, agencies have the power to revolutionize the decision-making process and seize every opportunity to take preemptive actions that mitigate risks. Learn more about the strategic advantage of TIPCO Analytics at tipco.com federal. That's tipco.com federal. Welcome back to the panel discussion, Predictive Intelligence, the Marriage of Data and Analytics in Cybersecurity, sponsored by TIBCO, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Stephen Dennis, Data Analytics Engine Director at the Homeland Security Department's DHS Advanced Research Projects Agency, that's located in the Science and Technology Directorate. David Bray is Chief Information Officer at the FCC. He's also Eisenhower Fellow to Taiwan and Australia and a Harvard Executive in Residence. And we have Julie Ard, Senior Principal Cyber Engineer and Architect at the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. And so before the break, we were getting into some of the big data issues. And I wanted to ask you about this idea, and we were talking about Einstein, which gathers data, and all of these network tools gathers data. In fact, TIBCO has published a chart showing 16 or 17 of the possible sets of tools that you could have feeding log data into a network that's not even transactional information or application information. And so 
tying that idea with all of this data gathering and somehow into analyzing events, uh, it seems like it's getting an awfully maybe overload of data. So mm -hmm. maybe you could comment on that. Steve? Yeah, so, uh, so I think overload is certainly contextual and it depends on the, as we were discussing earlier, the um, maturity model that uh, an organization subscribes to with respect to analytics. And so uh, you're overloaded when you can no longer use the tools that are in front of you in order to access the volume of data or the variety of data that might be uh, available to you for doing a specific mission. And so we've been working on that at Homeland Security by uh, hosting a laboratory that allows folks to come try different ways uh, to conduct analysis using emerging tools that might be coming from industry or from government um, and uh, being able to actually process the data that they're used to processing. So uh, having an, a laboratory environment that allows for folks to see how different tools work is, is a great way to, to move them beyond their data overload. Also, we, uh, we spend some time looking at the decision process that an organization is actually implementing uh, to try and figure out, you know, does that data flow make sense? Does the workflow make sense? Um, and understanding the real problem before applying technology, and I think that makes a huge difference. Because really, yeah. in all of this data, you're not looking for anything except maybe the six bits or that little byte there. And so the question is then, how do you find what's valuable in all of that? And, but then the problem is tools upon tools. That's right. And so the complexity of, of even getting towards simplicity, if that makes any sense, it, it, it makes sounds a lot like it's of getting sense. worse. And, and so that's why I was saying it's important to consider the maturity level of the uh, analysts that you're working with. And so what are they able to actually grasp quickly? Uh, you know, for example, we were working with a group uh, who was very used to using spreadsheets to do their work. Uh, we wanted to jump immediately to graph analytics because we thought that was exactly where the problem was, uh, but it was too much for that group to embrace that method of, of doing analysis. So instead we went to them uh, in, in the spreadsheet model, you know, helped them understand how to process their big data that way. Um, and then about a year later they came back to us and said we want to see this more like transactions and graphs and, and so giving them time to actually grow and, uh, and to understand the power of the tools that are available is, is a very important part of the process. And so we as scientists and engineers might look at it and say, well, we're going to immediately jump to the most sophisticated solution that creates less work, but maybe that's not something that the organization or the individual analysts are ready to adopt. And I would think that if there are, if you're getting people to move from, you know, 500,000 line spreadsheets to some other methodology, then that would be a good chance to move all of that analysis to the cloud which Absolutely. might be a more logical place for it to be. Well, and as long as you put the infrastructure in place so that they can make those advances with fewer engineering changes, that's, that's the, really the approach we're taking. Okay, uh, other comments on that complexity and data overload question? So, to frame the context of the data overload, uh, the amount of data on the face of the planet is doubling at least every two years, so that in less than six but years... Not the amount of wisdom, just the data. No, data, this is data. Uh, and that we'll have 9.6 billion versions of the Library of Congress in less than six years on the face of the planet. I haven't even read the first shelf there. I was gonna say, so it, it's, it's, it's apparently more data than all human conversations we've ever had as a species times two. So it's, we are, we are literally going to be drowning in data. Um, at the same time, I actually kind of feel like everything that's old is new again in some respects because um, I was involved back in 2000 to 2005 with what was called the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program at the mm -hmm. CDC. And we had two tracks, which was one was laboratory, which was, you know, there's no one test that says this is anthrax or this right. is plague. Same is true for cyber that you actually have to go through almost like a defined process to identify if the signature is something that's malicious, has it been morphed, has it been changed. We need that same thing that is sort of the diagnostic side. But that alone is actually not sufficient. You also need the tipping and queuing. And so if you think about it, there are, there are things that are showing that maybe reconnaissance is being done on your network, that maybe someone is trying to actually do an attack. And so in, in, the, in the bio realm, we have what's called epidemiology. And we actually knew that the severe, severe acute respiratory syndrome happened about nine months before it was finally publicly admitted. Um, and, and those nations involved actually made it. And we knew that actually because the price of garlic went up. 
because garlic is seen as a cure-all in certain places, and so when the price of garlic goes up, that's a sign that there's a demand for garlic, therefore something's going on. And so the same is needed in the cyber realm, which is what are those tipping and queuing? That's not the diagnostic that this is the actual malicious payload, but something odd is going on here. And that only happens when you begin to pool your resources and you're not trying to fight the cybersecurity fat battle just as yourself. And so cloud offers that opportunity, but it is trying to figure out what's the most important data. And so then that gets to, I'd like to see more experiments with the private sector and the public sector as to what are those important diagnostics that are the equivalent of the price of garlic has gone up that is showing that something odd is going on over mm -hmm. here. We don't know what it is exactly, but you need to pay more attention to it. So that brings in analytics of data from completely other different domains, which the government may have already. They do track commodity prices and farm prices, and there's lots of data that have nothing to do with cybersecurity. But so that brings in the element of imagination at some level. You have to have the element of imagination, of creativity, and it's also just recognizing that I increasingly think that the word government is an outdated 20th century term, and we need to talk about public service in the sense that, you know, packet latency between Kansas, Topeka, Kansas, and D.C. is not four days on horseback anymore. It's now milliseconds. And so what can we do to involve members of the public directly if they want to? They don't have to if they don't want to involve private sector partners and government professionals, because a lot of this actually, um, as was said by Stephen earlier, the targets are really the private sector. I mean, you hear about government just because we are transparent about what happens, but the targets are really the private sector where intellectual property is. And the question is, what can they do to actually try and work together to share what they're seeing so that they're not trying to defend everything by themselves, but they're actually working together and bringing the data together to move things ahead? Okay, Julie, thoughts? Yes, uh, I don't think anyone will argue that we are definitely drowning in data. Um, it is expensive, computationally expensive to collect, it's expensive to store, it's expensive to process, and it's, it's not all useful data. So while you have you know, too much data, you're, you're missing actually what, mm -hmm. what you want because you, you can't find that needle in the haystack. Um, and also it's not reliable when you're, um, if, if you have an endpoint system, mm -hmm. you know, for example, an endpoint sensor, when that endpoint is compromised, that's when you really want the data and you can't, you can't trust it because the endpoint's been compromised. So mm -hmm. that's why the cloud environment is so exciting. Um, the data's already all there. You don't have to go get it from an endpoint system. Um, you can leverage the processing power of the cloud. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, if you architect your house in such a way that, you know, each, each room has a specific special function mm -hmm. and then the, the sensors are finely tuned to that function, um, you, you know better what to look for. And your analytics, you know, um, as someone mentioned, uh, this looks funny, let's, let's look more closely at that, mm -hmm. and the analytics can do that. So is this theory uh, or this uh, way of looking at it applied to the operation of IARPA as, an, as a sub-agency, but also in some of the research you're doing that will be delivered to the greater intelligence community for its work? Yes, actually uh, the output of the Virtue Project will be open source. So uh, as the government is moving to the cloud, um, so you know, we see also in the private sector and uh, the results of our research will be available to anyone who wants to use it. That was called the? The Virtue Program. The Virtue Program, and so what is the status of it at this point? Uh, we are uh, currently in source selection, so I can't comment a whole so lot So it's in source that. selection, okay, <laughs> same, selection. no need to say anymore. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we'll hope that source uh, works out for you yes, when the time we, is finally we selected. We the program to start this year. And I wanted to get to continu continuing on this idea of big data and trying to find something through it. David, you have the concept of fog. Yes. And uh, that seems to apply here. So uh, recognizing that, that we in, in, in the field of technology always come up with interesting metaphors. It is the recognition that we are fast approaching an era in which you are not going to be able to bring together in a centralized place all the data you need to make security decisions or resiliency decisions. And so what we're really trying to think about is how can we actually have things at a localized context so that you can make those decisions. And these are going to be sort of your local clouds that are going to be developed ad hoc on the fly as opposed to a dedicated cloud provider that might be 
so removed that you're going to introduce additional latency. And so you're thinking about ad hoc mesh networking. You're thinking about how can you actually involve those partners. And as Julie said, the question is, how can you build in trust recognizing that from the start, things may be compromised, things may be hard to trust. And so in some respects, I recommend any organization sort of build with the assumption that you already have some active exploits in your environment, and you basically have to build with that in mind. Uh, You think about it. No submarine would flood when there's a single leak. They always have the ability to do compartmentalization and have things that can right. close mm-hmm. off. The same thing is true with organizations. That's the resiliency kind yes. of idea. The resiliency, I think it's, it's paramount because the reality is in an always connected world, even if you do, I mean, there's a wonderful example. Uh, about a year ago, there was a hedge fund in England, which they, they did everything they needed to do on the security front, but their chief financial officer got a phone call from someone saying, we need to reset your user account. Could you please give us your password? Mm-hmm. And they did. And of course, 24 hours later, the hedge fund had no more money. Mm-hmm. And so you can do everything right on the technology front and not solve for the human factor. And so you should always assume things will go wrong. You always need to be resilient. But that said, what is that public good? And that's where I really think we do need to think about public service involving the private sector. I mean, a lot of these commercial companies are seeing things that by themselves may just be sort of one-tenth of the value of if they pulled it together in a way that was de-identified, had safe harbor. Mm -hmm. If we had situation awareness across all these different companies as to what they were seeing, we collectively would be 100 times better off. But how do we overcome that sort of collective action problem of which companies may not feel necessarily trusting about giving it to the government per se? Mm -hmm. Maybe the solution is actually to have a nonprofit or something that does it instead that is backed by public service entities. But this is one of the things that we're talking about at Harvard is what is the equivalent of the daily health of the Internet report that can inform you as an individual when you buy devices? Because the other thing is right now consumers don't feel the imperative to buy secure devices. And in fact, the research shows that if it adds more than about 60 cents to device, you're probably not going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So in some respects, we have this challenge of the market is not creating a demand signal for additional security. At the same time, we're seeing these breaches happen on a daily basis. The question then is, how do we move this forward in such a way that we can actually encourage both individual members of the public and public sector private partners to recognize this is a collective action problem? And that gets me to a question, kind of a practical application of this, uh, Stephen, and that is the policy of the government and the kind of the keeper of the policy, if you will, is Homeland Security, again, down the hall from you, but continuous monitoring and continuous diagnostics and monitoring. Mm -hmm. That started out as a very basic level, are we patched? Right. What we're talking about is way beyond whether you're patched, but really the behavior of an organic system that is as big as the world. That's why you can't fit it in only one corner of the world, because it is the world. And so what, what is the thinking with respect to what agencies should be monitoring now, as well, a, 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 besides patches? Yeah, certainly. Well, and there's a big focus on insider threat, and as I mentioned earlier, instrumenting the system for productivity purposes is, is almost the same thing. Um, but So I think folks should be looking way beyond just patches. Uh, in in order to understand their network and their system and to have options, as you mentioned earlier, about, you know, what do you do when you detect a threat? Are you going to quarantine it? Are you going to change the way your network works or the way your machines work uh, to make it more difficult? Um, And so I think uh, when I look at this environment where we have lots and lots of data and information, uh, you know, we've been strategizing for the last year about what, how do we get through this fog that David was mentioning? And uh, we've come up with uh, an area of focus uh, in conjunction with the National Science Foundation uh, called Real-Time Analytics for Multi-Party, Metro-Scale, Multi-Latency Networks. And so what, what kind of analytic environment can we bring to the table that allows us to see unfolding live data streams in the context of historic information that we may have? Uh, so that we get a, a better picture of the analytic that we're computing. Also, what, how we will treat data that might not be trusted. So there might be data where device attestation was great, but there might be data that comes from the unknown. I don't know how to trust that. How am I going to factor in error from those data sources in order to make use of that analytically? And then further, to instrument a system that's doing this itself so that it understands when data refresh is likely. And so maybe the system can communicate to me that in the next two minutes I'm going to get a lot better data and it's worth waiting. So if you think about that response context that DHS has, mm-hmm. um, you know, it'd be really nice to know that if, if I don't make a, a call uh, in an emergency response situation for two more minutes, I'm going to have a much better decision at the end of that. So we've just begun working on this idea 
as a way to coalesce and organize and structure mm -hmm. uh, the academic community, the industry, uh, in a way that uh, helps them help us brainstorm through this space uh, so that we can create that next generation analytic, which I think would do continuous monitoring, but a lot more. So uh, what I'm hearing is, is the application of the computing power that's out there to the computers themselves, much yes. more to a I guess an order of magnitude greater degree than has been done until now. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. And then you realize too that you have computational strategies that can be employed. David was mentioning, you know, you could compute something locally with mesh networks. You could, uh, but understanding that when you design the code, understanding that when you design the system, and all of the ramifications of that uh, are going to be important. Not to mention the uh, levels of autonomy that have to be part of that system, and then what are our policies our cyber policies and other governance policies uh, for such systems, and, and I think that's an even trickier space. You know, we've been watching the driverless vehicle uh, area very closely just to see you know, how is the government gonna respond uh, to autonomy in uh, high consequence decision making such as exists in driverless vehicles. All right, good place to take a break. My guests today are Julie Ard. She's Senior Principal Cyber Engineer and Architect at the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. David Bray is Chief Information Officer at the Federal Communications Commission, also Eisenhower Fellow to Taiwan and Australia, and Harvard Executive in Residence. Stephen Dennis is Data Analytics Engine Director at the Homeland Security Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency, part of the Science and Technology Directorate. And I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Our discussion is Predictive Intelligence, the Marriage of Data and Analytics in Cybersecurity, sponsored by TIBCO here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Know the why behind the what. Using TIBCO Analytics, your agency can uncover new dimensions and gain predictive insights in order to eliminate cyber threats. With TIBCO Analytics, agencies have the power to revolutionize the decision-making process and seize every opportunity to take preemptive actions that mitigate risks. Learn more about the strategic advantage of TIBCO Analytics at tibco.com federal. That's tibco.com federal. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Predictive Intelligence, the Marriage of Data and Analytics in Cybersecurity, sponsored by TIBCO, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are David Bray, Chief Information Officer at the FCC, also Eisenhower Fellow to Taiwan and Australia, and Harvard Executive in Residence. Julie Ard is Senior Principal Cyber Engineer and Architect at the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, and Stephen Dennis. Data Analytics Engine Director at the Homeland Security Department's DHS Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's part of the Science and Technology Directorate. And I want to turn to the human factor here, because a couple of examples that came up in the earlier discussion about a hedge fund vice president executive was fooled by a telephone phishing attack. It wasn't even email, uh, as David related, and that was a famous story, and they lost all their money when he gave a password out over the telephone to someone he thought was the company. And then this idea of the uh, garlic futures, the commodity prices changing, could indicate something else happening in, in, a t in an entirely different domain other than demand for garlic. And so we should really talk about the human piece of this. You know, there's an old saying in the car industry that the safety engineers had, we can fix any part of the car except the nut behind the wheel. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of gets to this human factor idea. Uh, Julie, what's going on with respect to the human design engineering factor of the next generation of cyber systems? Uh, two things. Um, IARPA actually has another program called CAUSE, which looks at unconventional uh, data sources to predict cyber attacks. That's C-O-Z or C-A-U-S-E? That's relevant to this discussion about garlic futures. For the cloud security program. cause and effect, in other words. Right, cause, yes. Um, for the human factor, um, in the, the Virtue program that I've been talking about, um, the, uh, the systems will be inherently more secure against insiders, and as we were discussing uh, earlier, they can be mm -hmm. accidental or, or intentional insiders um, by, for example, uh, you know, locking down access to certain resources, and as we were talking about the fog earlier, um, 
a local decision could be made to pr to protect resources uh, based on uh, be bad behavior that's being detected. So, um, so we we very much have the human you know flaw in mind when we're designing our systems. So the cause project's goal is how would you put that? To just kind of summarize, uh, the co the cause project um, is to predict uh, cyber attacks based on an unconventional data sources. So that could be like from phishing. Does it take into account the possibility of like a telephone call or something completely wild vector that's not on the screen in front of the person? Um, it's looking more at like news events. I see. Yeah, and dark okay. web data. All right. So, but it's looking beyond. Yeah. So it's looking wide. Mm -hmm. for possible uh, vectors, I guess, of, of attack. Uh, yes, Stephen, there must be similar work going on in Homeland Security that way, too. Absolutely, and so uh, this engine concept that uh, we've been discussing, data analytics engine, there are other engines, and so uh, inside of HSARPA, so we have a modeling and simulation engine. Uh, we also have one that focuses on behavioral and social science. And we can actually go down the hall to our colleagues and have these discussions about how humans are going to interact with machines uh, and get a completely different perspective than the engineering perspective we bring to the table, which is very important for a good problem solving. Um, I think that uh, you know when we were mentioning earlier having the system be instrumented to the point where it can tell you what you're doing mm -hmm. uh, as an individual giving you personal feedback, uh, models could be developed that help you become a lot more f effective at your job. Um, also having the uh, insight into what groups are doing, how groups collaborate, uh, you know, what makes them productive is very important across all of the missions of, of DHS. And so uh, building that into the systems, you know, the systems we inherit today are not instrumented that way. Uh, but certainly as we move to the cloud and as we bring in more advanced computation, it's going to be easier and easier for us to take advantage of uh, seamless interfaces with, with humans as part of the decision-making process. And then being able to communicate to not just the analysts but uh, even to the public, you know, what risk am I taking in a certain situation uh, is going to be important in the, in the new paradigm. And so you have a lot more information to inform risk. How is that communicated? For example, when you buy a driverless vehicle in the future, how are you going to be uh, aware of all the risk that you're taking when you're in one of several modes maybe that the car can support? Mm -hmm. So that idea of the uh, better human interaction with systems has a lot of applications, cybersecurity, but I've heard of systems where eye, eye tracking, yes. uh, as people looking at various data sources on crowded environments uh, can help them redesign. So even for digital system design, that's right. Uh, there's a benefit there, too. And then it could be customized to you in the way that you think and, and act. All right, David, uh, you must see that in Taiwan, Australia, Harvard, and yes. the FCC. <laughs> yes, on multiple levels. So uh, I, I've, the, the, when I actually, one of the conversations I had with a very high-level lo uh, leader in, in, in my journeys overseas said, if you want a perfect system, get rid of all the humans. And so recognizing that humans introduce interesting challenges to the Great system. Great country, except for all those <laughs> citizens out there. Right? Something like that. Um, so I think you have to recognize that this is an 80% people issue. We can, it's 20% the technology, and it's, it's hard technology, but it is 80% a people issue. And really, it's about issues of both trust as well as awareness of the risk. Um, at RSA, um, Google actually pointed out that office email is about six times more likely to be targeted for phishing than home email. Mm -hmm. And so you've got individuals that are coming into the work environment that are used to their home environment, which is not really that threatening environment, and they are confused when they enter into the workplace and they find that it's much more of a, a, a battlefield of sorts. Um, that then raises interesting questions about how do you effectively allow people to do their jobs but also create the awareness of the risk. And that's why, again, I think we need to have somebody that begins to share in a way that's accessible, not just to technologists, but somebody that is available to the public as to say, right now your organization is experiencing a mild storm or it's in the middle of a hurricane, or the place where you're attempting to access your work environment is very much at risk. And we don't have that information right now that's publicly available. It also raises interesting questions about how do you solve for the human factor when more and more of these devices are going to be connected at home? Uh, I'd ask you and I'd ask our listeners as to how many people have checked the last time their router's firmware was updated? And that's just your wireless access point. Mm -hmm. When you have more and more of these devices, are you going to check and make sure they have the most recent patches? Because essentially we're all going to become CIOs of our home environment. I just don't know if most of us want to do that. And so it raises interesting questions about how you bring automation to that. And when we talk about predictive intelligence, it really is that, which is basically 
bringing in some sort of machine learning, artificial intelligence that can point and cue when things are going wrong. But at the same time, it's not going to be able to tell you why. In some respects, AI machine learning is a lot like a five-year-old, which is they'll just say, I spotted this odd pattern, or that doesn't sound right to me. But when you ask them why, it's going to require a human to dive deeper. And that actually is a, that's an interesting opportunity, because if we can identify what your normal patterns of behaviors are, and maybe you get a phone call and it says, I'm not sure you should take that phone call, if it could explain to you why and say it looks like it's a spoof number that's trying to look like it's coming inside your organization, you're less frustrated. If you temporarily right. disable the CEO's account because you see that their account is being accessed from a foreign country that you don't know they're on travel to, you know, the CEO might be mildly perturbed, but if you explain why, that the reason why was you, it was being accessed from another foreign country that we didn't think you were on travel about, then it actually becomes more of a two-way street. And so we need to be able to actually think about how do we pair humans with machine learning to actually make it a paired dialogue as opposed to one or the other. I want to get back to that question about uh, sources, as, uh, as Julie brought up in the CAUSE project. You know, where are these attacks coming from? What, 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 what's the developing wave of vectors and so forth? And uh, someone mentioned the dark web, and which really the dark web is an architecture. It's not a place. And the servers are right next door to the servers that are on the indexed web. These are simply unindexed servers that you can't find easily. But they're there. So I'm wondering, uh, I think there's different levels of sophistication, even knowledge of the dark web and what you can learn from it among federal agencies. What are you seeing, what are you seeing there? Stephen? Yes, so uh, I think the dark web is an important source of information. Uh, it's, as you mentioned, not easy to... Uh, uh, to index or, or understand, but I think it's a very important uh, source that uh, shouldn't be overlooked. I mean, Tor and was developed in the Navy, so you would think right, the federal exactly. government should be, should be there. Well, and so, uh, you know, on the other side of that, uh, you know, some of the architectural um, uh, innovations that have happened in the dark web could have positive value and use, and we are exploring those uh, in ways that could enhance uh, untrusted information sharing and uh, and cryptographically uh, certified uh, uh, information sharing and transactions. Um, there's a whole wealth of opportunity on the positive side. Yeah, so there, there's data there that could be analyzed along with the indexable data, the manifest data that's mm -hmm. on the, I guess, what do they call it, the surface web or the easily accessed web. So uh, I would say there's, there's, there's several commercial companies that actually do this and provide intelligence products um, that can actually tip and queue if, if it looks like your organization is being targeted. I think what this really gets to, however, is that technology itself is amoral, that the Internet, which allows most of us to do great or benign things, can also be used for less than great purposes too, such as human trafficking or cyber attacks or uh, narcotics trafficking. And I think... There's another technology out there that also deserves a sort of more deeper debate on both sides, which is encryption. Um, I actually, uh, in talking to people in Taiwan and Australia and then doing follow-up conversations with them, they were very confused when the whole Apple versus FBI debate happened. And that this was their observations in Taiwan and Australia where they said, you know, one, you shouldn't ask for a key that unlocks every house. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But then two, you shouldn't design a house where one key unlocks every house. And mm -hmm. so both sides of the issues seem to be overcomplicating the issue and actually not diving into it, which was really the case, which is, yes, you shouldn't have a key that unlocks everything, but you also shouldn't design a house where one key unlocks it as well. Think about how you can actually come up with an architecture that allows when actual reasonable cause has been established, it's one key for one house as opposed to one for many. And I think we'll need, we're going to need to talk about that because more and more of the Internet is going to become encrypted. That is good because it also helps protect privacy and civil liberties, but it then raises questions about what other things are going to be hidden in the encrypted traffic that organizations aren't going to be able to see, such that if you are trying to do a cyber attack or something like that, that may not be visible to us all. Yeah, so you need the right filters almost, if you will, to see the invisible light. Mm -hmm. It's challenging, though, because I would actually argument that you don't really want to decrypt the encrypted traffic. That sort of breaks the model. Mm -hmm. um, this actually raises interesting questions about how right now, uh, with Einstein, for the earlier versions, you did have to route all your traffic to DHS. And when you go to a cloud environment, you really don't want to route all that traffic to one place, because if you route it to one place, it defeats the whole point of cloud. And so I think we need to actually have more of a sophisticated conversation. And I've seen, actually, our Congress actually is proposing doing a deeper dive on digital security. And I think that's needed, because right now you've got, maybe it's just the era of our age where everything is reduced to sound bites. Both sides have merit. But really, if we think about sort of imagination and creativity and design, I would submit that you can actually design something that does privacy and civil liberty protections at the same time address the security of organizations and people. 
Steve, something to add? Yeah, no, I, I just agree with that approach, and I think it's uh, I think it's an important place to go. And uh, you know, we've started looking at uh, at the blockchain as one transformational architecture that might be used for a variety of uh, of uh, mixed trust environment information sharing applications. And uh, I think we should continue to explore that and debate and understand uh, these trade-offs as as we go forward. And one other thing, uh, speaking of uh, this whole dark web idea and use of these new technologies, and that is one of the vexing issues that we'll maybe end on and see what approaches you're thinking about is attribution of attacks. Because there's more and more talk about maybe counterattacking in some manner that can be allowed by law and appropriate to what an agency is doing. We're not going to launch hacking attacks and so forth, but uh, you know, reverse types of engineering and also but you have to know who it is, where it's coming from, with some certainty, and that seems to never be the case. Is there anything developing in analytics that can lead to better attribution? Maybe not. <laughs> so, um, I would say attribution is a very thorny issue, um, partly because, again, as we talked earlier, that the way TCP/IP was built, it was not built thinking about all the different uses it could be done for, and so attribution is difficult with the current TCP/IP stack. Um, that's partly why I caution about the hackback approach, is that if you really want to do something malicious, you would make it look like party A attack party B, and you make it look like party B attack party A, and you'd step back and watch and the mayhem ensue. Right. Yeah, and you just watch. I think, again, that's where maybe before we go that far, maybe we just need to first have what is it, you know, why don't we even have a baseline of what the activities are that we can actually publicly talk about? Because if we don't have that baseline, then everything is anecdote-based, and we really need to have it much more informed by the actual data science. And so I'm excited about that. That said, again, what we've not been talking about is this is a huge change for how people work and how people work with machine learning and AI. And my concern is I don't see, I don't see one, and I say this as currently as chair for the Federal Cloud Center of Excellence at GSA, I don't see a lot of public service agencies moving to the cloud, let alone moving to AI. And so my worry is if you don't move to cloud, you're not going to be able to do any of the advantages of what we just talked about here. Plus, I don't see experimentations in AI. So in some respects, we need to accelerate the push to move to cloud, and then from there, think about resiliency in AI that could actually help inform these approaches. All right, we could probably go on for hours more, but we are at the end of the session, so I would like to take this moment to thank today's guests. David Bray is the Chief Information Officer at the FCC, also an Eisenhower Fellow to Taiwan and Australia, and Harvard Executive in Residence. Stephen Dennis is Data Analytics Engine Director at the Homeland Security Department's DHS Advanced Research Projects Agency, part of the Science and Technology Directorate. And Julie Ard is Senior Principal Cyber Engineer and Architect at the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. I'm Tom Temin, Federal News Radio 1500 AM. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com. Use the search term TIBCO. Thank you for listening to the panel discussion, Predictive Intelligence, the Marriage of Data and Analytics in Cybersecurity, sponsored by TIPCO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search TIPCO.